This is the Six Figure Home Studio Podcast, episode 28. Whoa. You're listening to the Six Figure Home Studio Podcast, the number one resource for running a profitable home recording studio. Now your hosts, Brian Hood and Chris Graham. Welcome to the Six Figure Home Studio Podcast. My name is Chris Graham, and today we have an awesome interview with Mr. Warren Hewitt. Warren is an impressive dude for many reasons. One, he's got a great British accent. Two, he is an extremely successful producer, audio mix engineer. He's worked on a ton of records that you've heard on the radio. I guarantee it. The other thing that sets Warren apart is not only is he super successful out in the real world, but he also is a YouTube superstar as far as audio engineers go. He's got 196,000 subscribers on his YouTube channel, Produce Like a Pro. He's been on just about everybody's show because he's an interesting dude. So stay tuned. Check out the knowledge bombs he's going to drop on us. And by and large, Warren had a huge part in the birth of this podcast originally. Back in the summer, Brian and I got to hang out with him at Summer Nam, And we had a conversation with him and a bunch of other guys over at Lid Shaw's place talking about what it means and what it takes to do audio for a living. And that conversation was so fun. It was a big reason that I said yes to co-hosting this podcast. So stay tuned for today's interview with Warren Hewitt. Warren, thank you so much for coming on the Six Figure Home Studio podcast today. I know our listeners are going to get a lot out of this because you have a very wide breadth of knowledge between a long career of both producing and then also a long career of teaching people how to produce. But I'm only 22. (laughs) Yeah, only 22. You've been doing this for 20 years. You've been doing this since you're two years old. Since you've done this for such a long time, I'd love to kind of start out what you consider was a big pivotal point early in your career that led to your, what I would consider your success in producing. For me, the moment where I first heard amazing rock and roll is the reason why I do music. I was eight years old and my dad for Christmas bought me A Night at the Opera by Queen. My dad is a huge, sorry, was a huge classical and jazz buff. All we heard in the house was classical music. So for him to buy me this rock album, I was eight. And I put on the headphones and I listened to it. I listened to side one for a couple of weeks, turned it over, listened to side two. I mean, I was obsessed. And all I can remember is that exhilaration, that feeling, all my hairs. And in fact, remembering it now, you're on Skype, you can see it. All my hairs will stand on end. (laughs) There's two answers to the question. So the first answer to the question, and the reason why I like telling this story is because I hope that it can help people get back to this moment. Because I do music because every time I work with a new artist or an established artist or whatever the heck it is, I want to reproduce that feeling. I want to make music. I want to find something in it that gives me shivers. And every single day of my life, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm chasing. And I always say I'm a musical junkie. I really am a musical junkie. And that's my high. My high. I don't drink. I don't smoke. I don't do drugs. I drink too much coffee. But my, my biggest vice is just that feeling, that immense feeling of like passion and hair standing up on the back of my head. So even though that's not the technical answer to your question, I still think it's a big part of why I do this. So that is the biggest thing for me. The next thing I think, probably on an American stage, it was probably working with The Fray because I got a lot of credits before The Fray produced a lot of bands, I engineered, mixed a lot of independent albums, a little bit um, The Thrills. I did the second Thrills album, Let's Bottle Bohemia, with Dave Sardi. I did the second Hot Hot Heat record. 
I had done some stuff with Wolf Mother before they got signed. I did all these different things that were higher profile. I had maybe mixed a track or two that you had heard. But the thing about the fray was, for me, what made it such a big deal is I was there on the get-go. I was there with the A&R guy that signed them listening to demos. He had flown out and seen them play the Fox Theatre in Colorado, and there was like 300 kids there freaking out, and nobody cared about this band. Nobody cared about this band. And I remember even when the album came out, they were selling three to 5,000 albums a week in the local area. Wow. Just in Colorado and, and the things. And to this day, every A&R guy I know at the time was just like, yeah, you know, flash in the pan, doesn't mean anything, you know, wrote them off. Everybody in the industry, everybody in the established area in Los Angeles was saying that. And they were all about emo and all this kind of stuff. And But you know what? The reason why it's a big deal for me is not just because I was involved in making the record or involved with working with them. The big deal was was because I heard it, I loved it, I believed in it, everybody around us involved in it thought it was amazing, and everybody on the professional, the business people, didn't get it. But you know who did get it? The rest of the world. And so it was a big thing for me because it was sort of like a, a validation in taste And I think for a lot of us, probably you can understand this feeling, and I'm sure all your listeners can. You get excited about working with artists. You put your heart and soul into it. And 99% of the time, it doesn't go anywhere for most people. It doesn't go anywhere. You co-write a song. You play guitar on it. You engineer. You mix it. You produce it. You put all of these energy into something, and, and then you can't get it arrested. You can't get anybody to take any notice, and that is most human beings experience. Most of us are working in the music industry. And we have this feeling of the gatekeepers. And to be honest, the gatekeepers in those days, in the late 90s and early 2000s, were destroying our music industry. They were stopping invention. They were stopping creativity. They had their five or six mixers and producers that made every single record. Emo was king. Every record sounded exactly the same. Every guy was like, nap, 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 nap. you remember, it was like completely <laughs> trolled by the, the music industry. And there was this little band that got signed at the time. Now it's considered probably a big deal, but at the time was signed to this tiny little deal. But everybody wrote off as not being anything. And it was proved wrong. So that to me was a big, big deal because it was the first time I felt excited about something and the rest of the world did as well. Because, you know, I'm sure you both have had that experience where you're excited by an artist and you just can't get people to pay attention. But the great thing is, is we now live in this world where you can, you can do it yourself. You can start a YouTube channel. You can start, you know, you can do all of these different things to get yourself out there. I love what you just said there with a lot of that stuff, but I would like to actually go back to the very beginning of this. But did you mention how you actually met the fray? What put you in the position to where you met those guys? And once you met them, saw the potential in them, started working with them, did you do anything additionally, say after the record was done to help that band, you know, get to where they are or get that initial bump of success? Well, I think with The Fray, what happened is I was working with a guy called Mike Flynn, who was an A&R guy at Epic. And he had found a band called Future Leaders of the World. Does anybody remember them? Oh, yeah. And so we sat them in a rehearsal room for like three months and went through and pulled all their songs apart and then tracked some demos. They got signed and he got an A&R gig out of those demos that we did. They actually took all of my demos. Garth took all my demos and added to them and, and uh, did the record. 
But anyway, he and I were like working on like tons of projects doing lots of different stuff. It was back in the days where there was a little bit more of a budget, so they would sign artists or develop artists. And I think we developed like four or five artists together. And one of those just happened to be The Fray. And they had already, and a big shout-out has to go to Aaron Johnson. Aaron Johnson was already their producer on board. He had produced their demos. In fact, Cable Car is largely his production. He was a guy that was in Colorado, found the guys, developed them from the get-go. So he got them signed because they started getting paid, played on the radio with Cable Car before any labels were interested. So he, he should get the big shout-out. So for me, I'm working with Flynn. This comes across his table. He flies out, goes and sees them play, brings it back, plays it to me. I remember sitting in his F-150 truck in a parking lot at a studio while we were making a different record, listening to, like, demos, proper demos. And it was just exciting. It was so exciting. And what I loved about that band and continue to love about that band is their purity. They were church kids. They, they didn't know anything outside of worship music. They had absolutely no idea who any of the bands they were being compared to were. They just had a purity that you could hear in their music that had nothing to do with trying to be somebody. You know how it is when you work with a lot of young bands? Yes. They're like, oh, yeah, we're a mixture of this band, this band, and that band, and they tried to sound like people. Their sound, whether it's considered to be unique or not, was just their own. And you could hear it. You could hear that honesty in their music. Well, there's a cool point you made there that I think a lot of our listeners could benefit from. This idea that what jumped out to you about the fray was their authenticity and the fact that they were self-actualizing in their music. They were trying to be a part of something bigger than themselves as opposed to just wanting to be famous, as opposed to just wanting to say, I'm like my hero. That's an interesting statement. You know, there's a, there's a lot to unpack there. Oh, yeah. Isaac is the most reluctant rock star in the entire world. I've worked with bands that are supposedly credible and they spend hours like, you know, overanalyzing every detail of what they do. But these guys were the exact opposite. They just got in a room and made music together. I think one of the things with The Fray that always jumped out to me, I love The Fray, is they told stories. Yeah. The songs were great stories. And aside from catchiness of the hook or you know how good Isaac is as a singer or any of that it was their stories are amazing you immediately get pulled in on their songs and I think as our listeners are thinking about how to emulate your career in some ways I think that there's probably some take home there with spotting authenticity but also spotting storytellers as opposed to just musicians I agree I think the easy answer to all of this is like it's the singer and the song and the reason why I say in that order, even though Quincy Jones's famous quote is it's three things in music, the song, the song, and the song, he might be right in that respect, but that's making an assumption that you've got Michael Jackson to sing your songs. So, you know what I mean? That's, it's good for him to say he's, he has that accessibility, but for the rest of us, we're looking for the singer. Once you have the singer... You know, you've got the big piece of it. Then, of course, it's the song, and you, you're either doing covers or you're co-writing or you're lucky if you're blessed to have, you know, a guy like Isaac and, and his songwriting partner, Joe. You know, they wrote a lot of those big songs together. So if you can find that, you know, it's in that order. It's the singer and the song. I'm always looking for unique voices. A band that I manage, produce... There's some kids from Ireland called the Matthews, for anybody that's an Academy member of mine will know them because we've done multi-tracks with them. They just got signed to um, Alan Kovacs' label, 11.7. But the reason why I fell in love with that band was because of Jack's voice. 
And what's interesting about his voice, and I was talking to AJ, their A&R guy, about this yesterday. He just heard their new demos and their piano vocal demos, live, off-the-floor piano vocal demos. And he called me to say, this is amazing. This guy has the most interesting, incredible voice I've ever heard. And I was like, yeah, this is how I felt about Isaac, because when you have those kind of voices, they're like a dividing line. You know, for everybody that thinks Bob Dylan is the greatest singer and songwriter of all time, there's 10 people who think that his voice sucks and he can't sing in tune. And it's arguable, maybe Dylan is not a great singer, but is he also possibly the greatest singer? Because when he sings something, you believe it? I think that's what all greatness does, isn't it? Isn't all greatness kind of like, the guy was the greatest politician that ever lived? No, he was the biggest heretic that ever lived. You know what I mean? Because, I mean, look, the Beatles, uh, what, sold the most amount of albums of all time? They've sold three or four hundred million, and then Michael Jackson's like 200 or something. Uh, the point is, is like, they didn't sell nine billion. There's a lot of people that don't like the Beatles. I've met musicians that tell me they're overrated. I mean, I don't agree, <laughs> but I do understand that that is a valid point of view. And that's what comes with the greatness, I think. You know, I'm, there's many singers that friends, and I'm sure, you know, mutually you've heard, and you're like, this is awful. But then. There's kids out there that are like, this is the greatest thing ever. So I'm always looking for that. I'm looking for something that's unbelievably unique. And unique doesn't always mean, and this is where I think artistry and technicality always never cross. This is where we have a big problem. It comes down to like, you remember that in the mix or rate right the mix or whatever, it, when it was still going? I don't know if you guys were involved in mm -hmm. that or knew that. They asked mm -hmm. me to judge one of them. And they got like the five top ten, five songs, sorry, that were picked. And I came in as a guest judge and I had the final say. And no disrespect to the other guys that judged, but the one I chose was the one they put down at number five. I put it at number one. And the f other four songs they had chosen were all technically really well mixed. But you know what I'm going to say. They were so boring. Lifeless. It was like, mm. oh, the drums sound really good and the bass is really balanced and the vocal. And it's just like, we don't listen to music like that. Mm. Kids don't go, oh, I really love that the 100 hertz is really even on the bass the whole time. <laughs> we, we don't listen to music like that. We go, yeah. wow, this is really exciting. Yeah, this is angry. This is beautiful. This is whatever it is. I think in our industry, especially in the, the genre that I work in, which is metal hardcore bands, you get that a lot. You get mixes that are dead and lifeless, but it's people are just trying to sound like their favorite producer, good or bad, regardless of the skill level. But let me actually, let me shift gears here real quick. You have had a very long career, I would say. I would say a long and successful career. Now that I'm 22. Career, but <laughs> don't lie to us. But what would you say are some of the most important things that you found to be part of maintaining such a long and healthy career in audio. I think this is something that would interest a lot of people because it's one thing to get a band that goes platinum and that'll help your career out immensely. But it's another thing to maintain that after the fact and not become a one hit wonder producer. I have two answers for that. You remember the, the Johnny Depp? It was quite a famous quote in like the mid late nineties. They asked him, what did he attribute his successful career at that point, you know, having come up in the 80s and still, still being like a number one box office star? And he said, oh, I've never said anything that I regret and I have uh, never offended anybody. So I heard that and I took it to heart and I tried so hard and I was the people pleaser from to end all people pleasers. And for the longest time in the, like, the 90s and early 2000s, my career stagnated and I was working. 
But I was working like most of us have to work, you know. Oh, you, I've only got $150. Can you do this for me? Oh, I've got 200 bucks. Will you do that? Oh, can we make a whole album for a grand? Can we do this? Can I? And I was working every hour that God sends. I mean, I still work every hour God sends, but more of my choosing. But in those days, I was just working, working, working. And I was paying my bills and I wasn't married yet. I was just a up and coming guy like everybody else. I was growing my skill set because I was working, but I wasn't growing my career. And then slowly and surely, and even to this day, I've sat in a room, I've been told that I'm wrong. I've had people criticize me. I've had people tell me I'm wrong. And it's one of those things that I think I wish I had known when I was a kid because I matured into this job. So the actual direct answer to your question is probably just perseverance. Because I could have given up when I was being downtrodden, when I was in the... Because, like, you know, I, I, I would get bands, I would develop them, they get signed, and I get pushed off the project. And there's a lot of bands that became very successful that you don't even know I worked with. So I would do a lot of that, and then it would go back to, like, the usual suspects, the same five or six guys would make the record, they take the demos, they copy them, the album came out, you've probably had it, you're nodding, you've probably had it done to you. You know, that's, that's the nature of the business. And it used to be prevalent in the 90s and early 2000s because there was so much money at stake that they always wanted those same guys to just make a cookie-cutter version of the record. Because it's safe. It's safe, but it also, as we all know, killed the record industry. Almost every other successful record from like 95 to about 2005 is absolute crap now. You listen to it now and you're like, I'm listening to 10 identical songs. I know you're noting because it's especially in rock. Before we get into the podcast today, let me tell you a little something crazy about myself. I'm actually a psychic, and I'm going to prove it to you. You and I, we've probably never met, but I bet I can describe your business better than you can. Here's what my crystal ball says. You probably have no idea how to get clients other than waiting around for referrals and word of mouth. You're stuck in a perpetual cycle of feast or famine, so you have wild income swings from month to month. You're charging way less than you should, and you know it, but you don't do anything about it. You feel like you have a million things you could be doing in your business, and you have no idea what you should be focusing on, and you have tons of little half-built bridges leading to nowhere because you've jumped from thing to thing to thing as a dabbler. Am I right? Does this sound eerily similar to you? That's because I've been in your shoes and I've worked with thousands of freelancers who've also been there. So I'm not a psychic. My crystal ball is not real. I just have a really clear understanding of what freelancers are facing today. And if I can predict your problems, you can bet I actually have a solution to these problems. It's called client acquisition. We talk about this all the time on the podcast, but for some reason, freelancers still haven't really figured this out yet. This is why I created Clients by Design Coaching. It's a truly unique coaching program that helps you build your own client acquisition machine so you can break out of this feast or famine cycle that most freelancers never escape. So here's how our approach is unique. First, we do a deep dive on your business, we figure out what's missing, and we give you a complete marketing roadmap right from the start. So no more dabbling, no more guesswork, just a clear path to getting more clients. You always know what your next step is because we actually assign specific tasks to you. So instead of feeling overwhelmed, instead of feeling scattered, you can just focus on your next step. That's it. We give you unlimited feedback on everything you do so you can feel confident that every single step you're taking is the right one. And we hold you accountable, not by nagging you, but just by genuinely supporting and cheering you on every step of the way. If you're behind on any steps we've assigned to you, we'll proactively reach out and see how we can help. Clients by Design is not a course. We look at it like a partnership. We'll always show up. We'll always give you what you need, but you have to be willing to put in the work. This program is not for everyone, and that is okay. As of right now, I just checked the numbers. We've only approved about 25% of the applicants we've gotten so far, and that's because we are selective. We only accept your application if we believe we can truly help you. So if you're ready to end your feast or famine cycle and build a client acquisition machine, 
You can apply for clients by design by going to sixfigurecreative.com slash coach. That's the number six, figurecreative.com slash coach. Now here's our show. In my world, especially, it's, you know, it's a fact. I can tell which of the five normal guys they went with because the mix sounds the same as the other stuff. And I'm guilty of this too. I mean, a lot of my mixes sound very similar just because I have a certain taste that I have on music, but I definitely understand what you're saying. So yeah, but the the big record companies would do that and they killed rock for us because you heard every kid saying it back in the mid early 2000s. They would always say the same thing, wouldn't they? Why are you forcing me to buy an album? I just want this one song. But anyway, yeah, lots of long little tangents. I'm famous for it. Sorry. <laughs> You've got an interesting perspective. Someone that not only has had a long career, but also teaches a lot of young producers uh, how to produce. What are some, some common mistakes that you see guys uh, from a career perspective, seeing guys make that are detrimental to their careers? The biggest problem I have is that a lot of the online tuition, if not most of it, and I'm sure you guys understand, it's all focused on the technical. And the reason why it's focused on the technical, and I know you guys are smart to understand this, is because it's easy. I was on a call with YouTube yesterday with a you know, content creator manager there, and we were talking about like how now there's a million YouTube channels for every subject, where not just music, um, changing the tire, you know, cooking, um, you name it. And we're in this world now that you can have a friend who's an okay communicator, and he can become an expert in whatever he decides he wants to be an expert in. In fact, tomorrow, if I said to you, do a cooking channel, you're, both of you guys are smart enough, give, give it two months, you could launch a cooking channel. Because what do you do? You go on, you watch 50 videos on how to fry bacon, and then you make a video with amazing production value, you know what I mean? Really well lit, heavily edited on how to cook bacon properly. And you could be Jamie, whatever the famous chef is. Brian, let's do that. Yeah, off you go. <laughs> I gave you a good idea. So the problem is, is like, so what's happening is everybody is focusing on the technical. That isn't what the great music that we love is, that's how it's made. It's all made from performances and it's all made from creativity. Now, if I want to do EDM, and I've done plenty of EDM, when I was in England in the late 80s and early 90s, I DJed and did dance music. I did it with sequencers and I did it with ADATs. And so I've come through like actual dance music. But the emphasis now being entirely on the technical is really messing up people. And I know, look, all these guys that are starting YouTube channels and tutoring stuff, they all want to make a living. And I totally don't dispute that they should be making a living out of this, but they've got to help artists make unique music rather than just help themselves sell products. It's like you need to get in there. We need to get in there and we need to encourage what's unique, not just making everything the same. I mean, because we all know, yeah, take a kick drum, boost it anywhere 50, 60, 70 hertz, cut out about 250 to 350, boost 2.5, boost 7K, and you've got a really good sounding kick. And you can do that with any, e, you know, easy drama, addictive drums, whatever. You can do the same generic thing. Depending on your genre, you might go seven and above if you're doing metal. The thing is, is that you can watch 10 videos and you know how to, to do a kick drum. You know how to do a snare drum. You know how to do bass. I've been showing people for decades how to take a bass, split it into two things, low pass and high pass, two different signals, get an even low end, blah, blah, blah. Now I get people I show that to me doing videos showing me back how to do it. These are all <laughs> wonderful, wonderful things, but they're there to sort of keep this sort of discussion going and they're great for people who want to make money out of teaching the same things, but that is not what's going to create and make great music. 
So when I want to help people, I want to help them find unique singers, great songwriters, people that are doing things in unique and different ways. You know, go to a bar, see a band play. If you like the band, go up to them, offer to do a song for free. You're not going to build a career just by copying all these other guys. It's just not going to happen. You need to grow your ability to develop artists. You won't learn just by doing the same thing that everybody else does. The technical side has to almost be a given. You have to know your DAW back to front. This is, yeah, this is what we teach in the Six Figure Home Studio. Any content we have in my courses or on the podcast, it assumes you have that base level of skills and abilities uh, that, that, that are required to be successful. And then we talk about the business side of things. Yeah, yeah. Well, we should talk a lot more about that stuff together because like, it's something that comes in my academy all the time. The two things I'm always finding in conversation are business and family. How do you make it all work? And it doesn't necessarily have to be from 45-year-old guys that are married with kids. It's more about like, how the heck do you even have a girlfriend? You know, I mean, yeah. I get that. I mean, I get guys <laughs> that are 25 years old and they're like, I can't hold down a relationship. It's all the same thing. And it is a skill that is very important. Because I think if you can balance your life, you can balance your business and you can be successful. Amen to that. Oh, that's fantastic. So th- that being said, we've talked about your YouTube presence. We talked about the academy you run, or we haven't really talked about that, but we can talk about that in a minute. You're doing a lot of things right now. You, you mentioned managing a band. What do you do to balance all of that? Because you, before this podcast, we we're talking about you have a family, you have kid, a kid or kids, you have more than two, two children. Okay. I'm not quite as far as Chris. Yeah. Chris has got three. But yeah, how do you manage all of these things in an effective way that, that you're not neglecting any one of these things? I mean, I think it's always give and take. I mean, that's an absolute reality. I'm sure Chris can say the same thing. There are times where you have to push one thing over the other. There's no magic formula. You just have to be cognizant. Do you have any tips around project management or time management that you found effective for you in this content battle? Yes, there's a million different things. I think ultimately, just be honest with yourself and be honest with your artist. If somebody emails you and says, I want this, this, and this done, to this day, I still make mistakes, by the way. I'm not preaching from any level of expertness. I pathologically hate experts, by the way. If you haven't heard that in my videos, I do not like experts because no expert I know actually works. They're just an expert. Amen. Yeah, thank you for giving me an amen to that one. It's just like all of my friends that are successful, and when I mean successful, I mean able to do what they love. I'm not talking about seven figures. I'm just talking about successful people. That's a really good definition of success, in my opinion. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I think all of us that are able to do what we love and feed our families or pay our bills or whatever, we all are constantly just doing this. And I think that you have to be honest with yourself and honest with your clients about deadlines and abilities, which means you literally have to tell them sometimes, you know what, you're giving me, say, 500 bucks to do something, which is a nice sum of money for anybody. I got 500 bucks. This is how much of my time you get. This is how much it's going to be. These are how many recalls you get for this $500 mix, you know. Or, you know, in Chris's case, I will master it. I'm sure Chris has clear boundaries. I'll master it and I'll give you X number of recalls if you don't like my master. You have to have good boundaries because if you don't, you'll get abused. And unfortunately, you know, that phrase, no good deed goes unpunished, is really true. It's unfortunate. The more you give somebody, the more the more they take. And it's not a problem. You can't be angry at the artist. It is our responsibility. One of the things when you hear me talk is I have to always remind people, I 100% believe in everything that Malcolm Gladwell preaches. 
from the first moment I read about 10,000 hours and I read everything he said, I think he is the smartest guy in the block. For those who don't know who that is, there's a book that you're referencing here called, is it Outliers? Yeah. Yeah. It'll be in the show notes for those, but go ahead and what you're saying there. So Outliers basically talks about the 10,000 hours and about putting in the hard work and everybody preaches that and maybe they don't know it comes from Malcolm Gladwell. That is a given. You need to be good at your job. So just work really hard on it and do many hours. The thing that I love about his book is he gives all these instances of what people think is luck. He talks about all of the big guys, all uh, Gates, Steve Jobs, Wozniak, all of these guys. And he says, yeah, they're all multimillionaires and billionaires because they happen to be born and grow up at the exact time the revolution was happening. They were all learned Java before anybody outside of this little tiny town in, in San Jose even knew what Java was. And they all happened to be at that school. Some of them were like 11 years old, learning Java, JavaScript and everything at 11 years old before it even left San Jose. So he's like basically says, yep, you're screwed. <laughs> he basically says it. And so you have one of two reactions. And you know what I'm going to say here. You either go, oh dear, I'm never going to be a billionaire. I'll never be able to be as big as those guys. I'm going to give up and go and be a chartered accountant. Or you go, and this is the bit I like, I'm going to create my own luck. And what does create your own luck means? It means you work super, super hard. You bring passion to everything you do. You push the boundaries and you create that same luck. Because he does that. He deliberately displays it and says, yep, if you want to be a guy or a girl that mooches around and complains that everybody else is lucky, then go and be that because you've got all these examples. But if you want to be, and then he starts bringing out all these outliers, all these people that looked at that and just pushed against it and just did something great. And he goes, they're the exceptions. They're the greatness. They're the, you know, supposed geniuses, whatever you want to call it. And they, they will always take adversity and turn it to be their greatest, you know, strength. And I think that this is really, really important for us. I believe that this is an incredible time to be doing music. And I grew up in an arts-based household with a father that loved everything to do with arts. My father loved music, painting, sculpture, and everything. And there was three of us in a 600-square-foot, uh, sorry, five of us, three kids, in a 600-square-foot bungalow in a village, and we had no money. And I don't believe that any part of that played into anything to do with my success or failure. I'd like to mention two insights just from what you just said. Going back to about making your own luck, what are those things that, I don't know if it was mentioned in, in Outliers or not, but part of the things that all those people had in common was the persistence, the grit. Yep. And, and that's when they hit those roadblocks where 99.99% of people would just give up or say it can't be done. They find a way to keep going or they keep going despite their failures and they, they, out, they basically outlast their failure to the point where they finally have success yep. on the other side of failure. And I think that's something that a lot of people never get past. But the second thing I want to mention is you just mentioned you're from a small village in England uh, and <laughs> yeah, and, and, but you ended up in LA. You're in LA now, right? Yeah. I feel like whether or not you realized it when you first moved out to LA, having the balls to make a big move like that out of your small comfort zone of a small village in England to the big city of LA where all the opportunity is, not many people will make that move. And I think that has a lot to do with making your own luck is being willing to make those moves. You know what? Thank you ever so much. And I agree in hundred percent. And I don't mean that like for an ego thing. I will tell you, and I think I am a massive anxiety wreck. I am the last person that should be doing anything great, that should be living in the hills, you know, in Los Angeles and making records with people you've heard of. Because I grew up 
terrified of everything and everybody and I had like two or three really close friends, wasn't very social. Everything that I am now, this big sort of supposed outgoing person, is pushing against. So that's the reason why when I talk about outliers and I talk about this stuff is because I firmly believe you have a choice. I believe it's an empowering thing. If you can overcome those kind of emotional things that hold you back, you will be more successful than the person that doesn't have it. Yeah. Well, based on what you're saying, you know, there's a book that I love by Malcolm Gladwell, one of his newer ones called David and Goliath. And that book is a sledgehammer. And he talks a lot about, about this. He kind of, I kind of feel like Dave, like he wrote outliers, you know, that's the whole, you have to put your 10,000 hours thing in. Then he wrote blink, which was used to be my favorite Malcolm Gladwell book. This idea that after you have your 10,000 hours, you have these incredible instincts and especially in art, you know, art's one of the examples they use. But in David and Goliath, he talks about people who have hard lives, who face this tension that you're talking about. Some of them go one way and say, oh, whoa, he's me. Oh. And then the other half say, you know what? I'm going to persevere. And, you know, hence the David of the David and Goliath. Super interesting. If you guys are looking for good books to read, all Malcolm Gladwell books ever are excellent and fascinating and are easy reads because you can't put them down. Oh, yeah. He's, he's amazing. So Warren, thank you so much for taking the time to come on with us. Where can people find out more about you, what you got going on? And I know you mentioned uh, this Academy. If you want to talk about that a little bit as well, go for it. Yeah, I have the Produce Like a Pro Academy. And I think ultimately it's a community. There's a whole bunch of people in there just massively supportive. The forum in there is just about helping each other. But the thing we do obviously every month, as, as a lot of other people do, is we do a new multi-track every month. But I also mix critique them. So I film a mixed critique and I talk about them. And I talk very similarly to the way I'm talking here. I talk about, you know, how a song might be technically really good, but it needs to be more creative, or how a song is really super creative, but needs more technical um, knowledge. And the great thing is everybody shares their settings. I allow people, because it's produced like a pro, and not just this emphasis on, on the technical ability of mixing, I allow people to add things to it, to do, recut the drums, to do basses, to do guitars. Sometimes people remix the whole songs as dance songs. Sometimes they do them as reggae tracks. Sometimes they do them as metal, whatever. The point is, is like, it's very much about creativity. It's about driving creativity and enhancing that massively. Um, but then, of course, I own ProMix Academy, which is basically, you know, courses. I have a, one with Mark Needham out at the moment, which is doing exceptionally well. It's uh, with an artist called Jay Clifford, and he is a singer of Jump Little Children. It's an incredibly good song. It was a song that was featured in Grey's Anatomy and has a video done by Zach Braff. So we have that. We have courses with Cameron Webb and Motorhead and all kinds of stuff. So you can mix huge stars, medium stuff, up and coming. You can look at all these different producers and engineers like Bob Marlette and Ulrich Wilde, who you probably know from the rock world. You know, they have courses as well. So there's tons of different stuff. So where can they go to find all of this wonderful stuff? Promixacademy.com and producelikeapro.com. Well, thank you guys so much for sticking around for today's podcast. Next week, we have an awesome podcast where Brian and I talk about our favorite tools to help grow your business. These are different pieces of software. These are different tips and tricks, and it's just a pretty fun episode. Uh, looking forward to that very much. One more thing before you guys go, if you are looking to up your game with your business, and especially if you are producing, if you are editing, if you are mixing, and also mastering your own music, let me speak to you right here about what I think you should do 
to improve the quality of your work, which will hopefully lead to more clients. It usually does. If you would like to improve the quality of your projects, one of the things I recommend is doing something called a mastering contest. Now, a mastering contest is where you take one song, you send it to a few people, you have them all master a sample, and then you compare the results. And it's pretty easy. It's low risk. It doesn't cost you a thing. So if you would like a mastering sample from me, Chris Graham, go to chrisgrammastering.com and there's a big old red button right in the middle of that before and after player that we've talked about. And it'll walk you through how to send me one of your projects for a free mastering sample. Now, why do I do this? Why do I do free mastering samples? Simple, because many of the people that send me a song for a free mastering sample end up hiring me again and again and again and again. That's really the goal is to build lifelong relationships with people to help them improve their chops, to help them sound better, to help them get more clients. So check out chrisgrammastering.com. Thanks for sticking around for my self-serving ask at the end of the podcast. Uh, We hope you guys tune in next week, next Tuesday at 6 a.m. You guys have a wonderful week. Happy hustling and best wishes. Whoa!